Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's hard to believe, but once again, the holidays are upon us. And goodness knows the proverbial most wonderful time of the year brings many traditions in which people delight and which they dread. I'd say my favorite holiday traditions are the food, the way my mom prepares it. The food. Food brings people together no matter what. Traditional gift-giving and the traditional uh, family get-together. I dread the shopping, I'm not going to lie. I dread eggnog. I think like that's the worst thing ever invented. I just hate that they overplay all the songs on the radio. I dread the Little Drummer Boy song. I love the holiday music, Christmas music. One of the good things is the Christmas carols. And looking at Home Alone and <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The lights, the trees, the spirit, the spirit of giving. Those were folks on the streets of D.C. sounding off on holiday traditions. And on this week's show, we'll take things a little bit further and explore traditions of all types, like a culinary tradition among the halls and bowls of Congress. Is the Senate bean soup better than the House bean soup? (laughs) Depends on if you like onions or not. We'll explore a growing custom among new moms in the D.C. region. It's such a norm in my practice for women to do it. It's not far-fetched at all. And we'll remember a man who gave his heart and soul to the tradition of bluegrass. It was, you know, like having an old friend in the house talking to you and then introducing you to some music maybe you hadn't heard before. We'll start today's show with a tradition that gained national attention earlier this fall, though not in the most positive way. It's the Jewish ritual bath or mikvah in which a woman, or in certain cases a man, immerses naked in water as a means of spiritual renewal. Rabbi Barry Frendel of Congregation Kesher Israel in Georgetown was arrested in October for allegedly videotaping women in the mikvah he supervised. When the news hit, I was in complete disbelief and uncertainty about everything. Rabbi Frendel was a professor of mine, and at first I just I couldn't believe that he had been accused of this. Gerald Baer has used the mikvah regularly since her marriage five years ago. After his arrest, I felt very uncomfortable going back to the mikvah, even though it had been a place of comfort for me. Turns out Bear wasn't the only one. Many local women say they've stopped using the mikvah altogether. And that, Bear realized, simply wasn't right. Thus, as Emily Berman tells us, Take Back the Mikvah was born. The surprising thing about the women who arrive at the Take Back the Mikvah event is that most of them don't use the mikvah regularly. Many of them have never been in a mikvah before. They arrive at Addis Israel Synagogue in Cleveland Park with little experience and many questions. Which is why Rabbi Jessica Minin takes the microphone. Minin is one of Gerald Baer's close friends from grad school. She also had Rabbi Barry Frendel as a teacher. And so when the news broke that he'd been arrested, she was shocked. But on the other hand, she says, this has happened before, 1,500 years ago. The issue of power dynamics around mikvah are as old, at least as the Gemara itself. The Gemara, part of Judaism's ancient texts, includes two short stories about rabbis and their questionable supervision of the mikvah. One in which a rabbi, Rabbi Gidal, is sitting at the mikvah gates telling women to immerse this way, immerse that way, only to be called out by other rabbis who say to him, quote, 
do you not fear the evil inclination? So how do we know that Rabbi Gidal never abused his power at the mikvah? We have no idea whether or not Rabbi Gidal ever abused his power at the mikvah, but we know that it was a point of contention a thousand years ago. There's a similar story with a different rabbi that takes place hundreds of years prior, showing, Rabbi Minin says, an ongoing concern about male power in the mikvah. This problem is not new. Just down the hall in the Addis Israel community mikvah, the air is humid and warm, like a pool locker room. There are six other mikvahs in the region, but this is the only one that's not orthodox. In orthodox communities, the primary use is mostly for conversions or for women to immerse after menstruation and childbirth. Here, the mikvah can be used for just about any life transition. You can come here before a bar or bat mitzvah, when you're ending a period of grieving, or marking an important anniversary. Naomi Malka runs the mikvah program at Addis and says her goal is to make the mikvah more accessible to Jews who hadn't considered trying it. In Reform and conservative communities, mikvah became something that other kind of Jews did. It wasn't what we did. It was what they did, what Orthodox women did. In an Orthodox mikvah, each immersion must be witnessed by an attendant. That person, always the same sex, checks the body of the person immersing for missed nail polish or stray hairs. There's not supposed to be any barrier between your skin and the water. At the Addis Israel Community Mikvah, except in the case of conversion, users can skip this process and go in alone. But in light of the videotaping scandal, even alone, Malka says, it may be difficult for many women to feel comfortable. What makes this scandal at the Kesher Mikvah so horrific is that cameras were set up and people were recorded and there were eyes on what happened in the mikvah that were not welcomed and that were not known about ahead of time, that's the violation. There are people who have stopped using mikvah completely as a result of what happened there. They can't bring themselves to do it. More than 420 immersions took place at the community mikvah last year, a number that's more than doubled since Malka took over eight years ago. Yes, the mikvah is a symbolic act immersing three times, and there are seven steps, and the water is rainwater. Those are all powerful Jewish symbols, but it's also very concrete. It's uh, our whole bodies, and we are much more vulnerable during this ritual, which makes it all the more powerful. The crux of the Take Back the Mikvah program is an immersion ceremony. Women leave the study session and go in small groups through a hallway and into the mikvah. There, a young woman named Sarah, who for demonstration purposes is wearing a bathing suit, walks the seven steps down into the mikvah water. Grant me the gift of safety, safety of body and safety of spirit. Source of all life, in your oneness, I find healing. May I know that I am safe and secure. She immerses three times, saying prayers specifically written for this event, rededicating herself to the ritual of mikvah. Back outside in the study session, Rabbi Jessica Minin circles back to those stories about male rabbis and the mikvah. She points out only one side of the story is being told. And what voice is missing, per usual? Right? Per usual. So 
part of reclaiming the mikvah and taking it back is taking ownership of these texts and learning them and asserting and inserting our voices, the voices of the women in the mikvah. More people are going to hear about mikvah in part because of the scandal at Kesher Israel. But, Minin says, she's doing what she can to make sure mikvah is known as the safe and sacred ritual it is. I'm Emily Berman. Want to learn more about Take Back the Mikvah? Head to our website, metroconnection.org. The next tradition we'll hear about dates back a decade, the Washington Ballet's very own special version of the Nutcracker. Before 2004, the company had performed a traditional iteration of the famous ballet, developed by company founder Mary Day. But when Day retired, she wanted her creation retired with her. So the company and its new artistic director, Septim Weber, decided to create something different, something only the nation's capital could have. John Hines attended a recent rehearsal to see how Weber and his dancers have kept the beloved holiday classic fresh yet familiar for the past 10 years. Ah, there it is, that iconic Tchaikovsky theme heralding one of Washington's holiday traditions. It's very own Nutcracker, this version created by the Washington Ballet's artistic director, Septim Weber. So uh, my version is set in historic Washington, D.C. in Georgetown in a mansion in 1882. Various historical figures that were actually D.C. residents at the time appear. For example, Frederick Douglass is a, is a guest and various ambassadors as Washington, D.C. became a global capital at that time. Six, seven, eight, and nine, and go. One, two, we're talking inside one of the ballet's rehearsal spaces. Not far away, dancers twirl and leap as Weber explains how he took a Russian ballet about a German family and made it something unique to D.C. The Nutcracker is based on George Washington. The Rat King is George III. And Act Two is set among the cherry blossoms in full bloom on the banks of the Potomac. Various bits of Washingtoniana and Americana have been worked into various sections of the production. As the D.C. version of the Nutcracker has aged over the past 10 years, Weber has tried to keep it fresh each year without changing its enduring charm. Benjamin Franklin and Betsy Ross had been part of the production, and they are joined this year by Harriet Tubman and Thomas Jefferson. Um, a couple of years ago, I added snow angels to the snow scene and bumblebees and various things. Small details. Um, I might re-choreograph a certain section. I've got a new duet for the Prince and Clara this year. But Weber believes that what really makes the Nutcracker new each year are the dancers themselves. The way it's different in a more important way is that in each year, young dancers become older dancers and more mature dancers. So within the cast, we're their premieres every year. So we have, you know, new sugar plums this year and new cavaliers and new claras and, you know, new little baby mushrooms and new beautiful little bees. And this is the, the, 
the most exciting evolution of the production is as dancers grew up through the production, they discover new things in the in the roles that others have danced before them. Three and four and a five, six and a seven and a eight. Ballerina Francesca de Garte agrees. She says the more she dances the Nutcracker, the more organic it feels, which helps her power through the fatigue of multiple performances. I mean, Nutcracker is tiring. It's a really tiring show because we have so many and it just never ends. And it's But just giving it, I will keep it fresh, giving it a good spirit every year. Trying to achieve a little bit more, trying to find something new that I haven't found before, trying to give a little bit of an extra sparkle. Nutcracker is full of sparkles. Dancer Danielle Robert says that all the performers have done the Nutcracker many times, but Weber allows the dancers the creative flexibility to interpret their characters. The opening of the Nutcracker, it's a, it's a party scene, and it goes for about 30 minutes, and we all, we, we do different roles, mostly character roles in that scene, and uh, Septim gives us freedom to bring what we want to those roles. So that actually keeps our, our time during Nutcracker nice and fresh, you know, to be able to, to do things a little bit differently each show. So that, that definitely helps having that freedom. So perhaps like Christmas itself, the Nutcracker becomes new every year. It is at once the same old thing and a new old thing, a tradition that can be reimagined and reinvented, and here in Washington, given a bit of homegrown flavor. I'm John Hines. You can catch the Washington Ballet's performance of The Nutcracker at the Warner Theater through December 28th. break. Essentially, it's just beans, water, onions, and ham hock. I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's a very simple, basic recipe, and there's not much more to it than that. A Capitol Hill tradition Democrats and Republicans can get behind. Plus, new moms turn to what they say is an old custom for adjusting to life after giving birth. Anything that I can do to help improve my entire postpartum scenario, I'll do. Stick around. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you our annual look at customs and rituals across the D.C. region, a show we call Traditions. Earlier in the hour, we heard about the Jewish ritual bath known as the mikvah and the women trying to reclaim it after the arrest of a local rabbi. And in just a bit, we'll meet modern-day players of an instrument whose heyday was hundreds of years ago. But we'll kick off this part of the program with a tradition whose roots are uncertain, actually, although it was big with women on some communes in the 1960s and 70s. In recent years, it's been gaining popularity among all kinds of women in the D.C. region. Like Annandale, Virginia resident Joanna Eddy. She said, it's time to eat. Indeed, now that her three-month-old daughter May is up from her afternoon nap, it's time to nurse. 
Joanna is a professional lactation consultant, but she had lactation troubles of her own when her first daughter, Vivian, was born in 2011. I struggle with low supply, and this time my milk came in much faster, and we see that with second babies anyway, but it's nice to know that there was something I was doing that was helping to contribute to that. What she was doing was consuming something certain cultures revere as a symbol of life, spirit, and individuality, something whose hormones and nutrients many midwives and doulas believe can increase breast milk, boost energy, balance hormones, and ease postpartum depression. Placenta. Your body grows a placenta early in your pregnancy. It's how you feed your baby. It's how you house your baby. It's how you keep your baby safe. And it's the only temporary organ in the human body, which is pretty cool. Ryan Morales and Candace Jones are doulas with District Doulas. They've seen placentas turned into capsules, homeopathic tinctures, even smoothies. I recently joined them in Ryan's kitchen in Del Rey. So should I put gloves on? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. To make placenta capsules. I posted on Facebook something like, Sleepy doula, headed home, placenta in the fridge, headed to bed, and my current roommate just replied, Wait, what? (laughs) And then my previous roommate replied, been there, done that. (laughs) Ryan says she's encapsulated five or six dozen placentas at this point, but she does understand how it might weird people out. When I was growing up, my mom was a labor and delivery nurse and trained as a midwife, and she brought a placenta home when I was little. She wanted us to see where babies live, and I thought that was so disgusting, right? But now my daughter, she will, like, get her hands on it. Like, if she was here right now, she would be gloved up. How old is she? She's five and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Now that Ryan, Candace, and I are similarly gloved up, the doulas show me the sterilized equipment they have arranged on the countertop. We follow all the OSHA standards. Um, This is all the equipment we use. There's a knife, scissors, a pan, the steamer in it. And then when we're done, we'll put in the dehydrator on the wax paper. And all of this is used only for placenta purposes. Yeah. After rinsing the placenta, we shear off the membrane, snip the umbilical cord, and give the whole thing another rinse. But before we can slice, dehydrate, and grind it into powder, and drop it in. we steam it for 20 minutes. You can hear the bubbles. Then we let it cool. Can I just feel the consistency? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a toughness to it. Yeah, it's just like when you have like a raw piece of meat and then you cook it. Next, we slice the placenta into strips, set them on wax paper, and pop them in the dehydrator. And we will let it dehydrate overnight, and then tomorrow we will put it into capsules. The National Institute of Child Health and Human Development has called the placenta, quote, one of the more important organs, not only for the health of a woman and her fetus during pregnancy, but also for the lifelong health of both. But doctors say no significant studies really prove the benefits of ingesting placenta. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists offers no guidelines for the practice. And the U.S. Food and Drug Administration doesn't technically consider the placenta a product. It's just not part of their their world. Though it's a big part of Tammy McKinley's, the Arlington-based midwife has helped hundreds of clients consume their placentas raw. For me, raw means cut up pieces of the placenta made into smoothies. So with the smoothies, you do it like any other smoothie. You'd put in banana, you'd put in... Yes, you put in whatever it is. But you want to put in something red to cover the the color of the placenta piece. As a mother of two, Tammy wishes she'd known about placenta ingestion when she was struggling with her own postpartum depression. But she understands why people might look askance at the practice. Some people think about it as cannibalism, actually. They can't fathom eating what they consider part of their body. And it's really just another product of the pregnancy. Besides, she says, other mammals eat their placentas all the time. 
they get rid of their placenta to keep away other predators. You know, they take care of the evidence. We don't need to do it for that reason, but it's for our health reasons postpartum. Tammy was Joanna Eddy's midwife when baby May was born in Annandale. And Joanna says not only has placenta ingestion helped her breastfeed, the hormones and nutrients have helped her simply cope with motherhood. Once the baby's born, it can become incredibly overwhelming. You're all of a sudden responsible for somebody's quality of life every second of your own life. It's a heavy burden to bear at times. Pardon the three-year-olds. <laughs> it's always an adventure here. In other words, Joanna's smoothies, capsules, and tincture have returned some balance to her life. And as doula Ryan Morales points out, that's no small feat. In addition to this huge hormonal shift, you're not sleeping, you're trying to learn to nurse, your whole life is sort of on its head. So taking back in some of those hormones and nutrients sort of makes the cliff of postpartum hormonal changes more of a hill. The way Ryan and other proponents see it, after nine months of eating for two, this kind of eating can be incredibly beneficial. Even if, for most people, it may not be one of the first things you expect when you're expecting. So we're talking about traditions this week, and Washington, D.C. is nothing if not steeped in tradition. From inaugural balls to the national Christmas tree lighting to -to down-to-the-wire wrangling to pass a budget in Congress. (laughs) And Congress is where we'll head next, actually, because the House and Senate thrive on customs, many of which date back to the Republic's early days. Lauren Ober introduces us to one Senate tradition that has less to do with bills and amendments and more to do with beans and onions. Winter is almost upon us here in the district, and that means it's soup season. There are plenty of places in the region to warm up with a steaming bowl of corn chowder or minestrone, but there's only one place to get D.C.'s signature soup. What we know is around 1904-1905, Senate bean soup shows up, and it's been on the Senate menu for whatever the eating facility may be ever since that time. Betty Coed knows a little something about Senate bean soup. She's the associate historian at the U.S. Senate, and it's her job to know about the governing body's various traditions. From the the fanciful Seersucker Thursday to the somewhat more serious maiden speech, the first speech a new lawmaker delivers on the Senate floor. Tradition is very important to the Senate. The Senate as an institution is very respectful of its history, of its tradition, and its precedents. The soup's origin story is a little murky. Coed said there are two tales of how the soup got on the Senate menu. One has Senator Fred Boy of Idaho that in around 1903-1902 asked that a bean soup be put on the menu and, and should be on the menu every day, and it's been on ever since. But then there's this explanation. Another story pins it to Senator Newt Nelson of Minnesota, who supposedly in 1904 made such a request. For what it's worth, Dubois was a Democrat. Nelson was a Republican. But the bean soup? That's bipartisan. Now, not to be outdone by the big boys in the Senate, the House instituted its own version. In 1904, House Speaker Joe Cannon demanded that a bean soup be put on the House dining room menu. 
Thunderation, he shouted. I had my mouth set for bean soup. From now on, hot or cold, rain, snow or shine, I want it on the menu every day. Okay, so I have an important question. Is the Senate bean soup better than the House bean soup? (laughs) Depends on if you like onions or not. Uh, The Senate bean soup has onions in it. The House bean soup does not. Okay, now have you had the Senate bean soup before in the cafeteria here? I have. (laughs) I'm not a big bean soup fan, so I can't say it's my favorite soup, but it's, it's not bad. Not exactly a ringing endorsement, but an appropriately Democratic answer. There are a couple of important things you need to know about the Senate bean soup. One is that the original recipe only has like five ingredients. Navy beans, ham hocks, onions, butter, and water, with some salt and pepper to taste. An updated version also has some carrots, celery, and mashed potatoes. The other important detail is that for 110 years, Senate bean soup has been on the menu every day but one. There was one time in the 1940s during World War II when they actually went a day without bean soup because there was food rationing going on and they ran out of their ration of beans. And so it was like a one-day departure from the standard menu. But they got it on the next day and it's been back there ever since. And that's what makes the soup a tradition. It's reliability. No tale about this storied staple would be complete without a trip to the Dirksen Senate Office Building cafeteria. So I head down to ask Senate staffers what they think of the soup. And it turns out, not much. Have you ever had the the bean soup? The woman I ask shakes her head no. Like, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't try it? I prefer the vegetarian. Okay. All right. The next person I ask about the soup has also never had it. I've been standing here for like 20 minutes and nobody's nobody's had any of it. Oh, on this one? <laughs> yeah, have you, have you ever had it? No. I've never had any other soup. Finally, I get an answer for why none of the diners in the Dirksen cafeteria are eating the bean soup. I think it's for tourists. Employees don't want to have that one. And so I pop over to a place with a bit more tourist foot traffic, the restaurant in the Capitol Visitor Center, which also serves Senate bean soup. There I find Linda McGee, who's visiting from Boston with her family. She got a bowl for lunch. Never had it before. It's my first time. She tries a spoonful. And it's very good. It's a little salty, but it is good. Yeah. Regardless of whether Senate bean soup is only eaten by tourists, it's not going anywhere. Because the Senate has this deep respect for tradition, it'll probably be there for a long time to come. I'll give the last word to the late Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, who had this to say about the soup. It has become an inviolate practice and a glorious tradition that the humble little bean should always be honored. I venture the belief that the marathon speakers of the Senate would agree the little bean had much to do with their sustained torrent of oratory. I'm Lauren Ober. Care to whip up some Senate bean soup yourself? You'll find a recipe on our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to switch gears now and talk about education. It's pretty traditional for most students in the U.S. to, at some point, learn a foreign language. But here in D.C., learning a foreign language isn't just another elective. In fact, you'll find long waiting lists at schools that fully immerse students into 
different languages. Kavitha Cardoza joins me now to talk about this shift in thinking about foreign language. Hi there, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. All right, so let's talk about these immersion programs. Does this mean that all subjects are taught in a language other than English? Half the time. So earlier this week, Rebecca, I visited one immersion school, Washington Yuying Public Charter School in Northeast D.C., There are approximately 500 students there, and they start learning Chinese when they're in pre-K. It's a dual-language immersion program, meaning students learn in Chinese one day and in English the other. So if you walk into half of one fifth-grade chemistry class, it might sound like this. But if you walk into the other half, right across the hallway... Chances are you or I wouldn't understand anything. And that, in case you're not a speaker of this language, is Chinese. One of the reasons programs like this are increasingly popular is research shows students who study more than one language do better academically, particularly African-American children and those who aren't fluent in English. Well, what about after school, after they graduate and try to get a job? Are there other benefits we might see then? Well, it probably goes without saying that employers are increasingly looking for these language skills. I recently met Lynn Fulton Archer with the Delaware Department of Education at a panel discussion. Here she is speaking in front of an audience. Fulton Archer says in 2010, an international company was thinking of expanding its presence in Delaware. But after months of research and time, it decided not to. And when the governor's office and the Department of Commerce went back to the company and they said, why? The company came back and said, the average potential employee in Delaware speaks one language. The average potential employee in the location where we're choosing to expand speaks three. Fulton Archer says Delaware has since created several dual language immersion programs. And how about D.C.? How do we stack up? Well, D.C. has 13 dual language public schools, both traditional and charter. They currently offer programs in Spanish, French, Hebrew, among other languages. Makita Alexander heads the Washington Yuying Public Charter School, and she says there's a huge demand for this sort of approach. Last year, we had about 1,100 applicants for about 20 spots. Wow, and I'm guessing the charter schools aren't the only ones seeing that kind of demand, right? Definitely not. Ten years ago, D.C.'s traditional public schools had one immersion school with 450 children. Now it has eight schools with more than 3,000 students. And there are plans to expand in the coming years because of long waiting lists. Now, I should say, despite this expansion, Rebecca, these programs have been criticized for what's seen as one significant problem. None of these are located east of the Anacostia River. I spoke about this with Katerina Brito, who heads bilingual education for DCPS. As in the rest of the country, dual language originated as a program to serve English language learning students. And that is how the majority of the programs in D.C. began. And so it's true, the programs, the elementary programs we have now are clustered in communities that have traditionally had large numbers of English language learners. But with the success of these programs and research that's coming out nationally showing that these programs are enriching for all students, we are joining the nation in, in recognizing that this, this would be a wonderful model to offer to more students. So that is definitely part of our plan. The purpose is not only for these students to be bilingual and biliterate, but also bicultural. So they have to understand the social mores. 
So, Kavitha, I can I can understand why educators and parents would want their children to learn more than one language. But what about the kids themselves? I mean, here you are taking chemistry. Are, do they get frustrated having to think in two languages when they're in a class like chemistry? Well, I talked with fifth grader Aiden Elliott about that. Here's what he has to say. It's fun to learn Chinese. It's good to learn a language. That's actually one of the things Barack Obama regrets. So, What do you mean? So it's from a book I read. He said he regrets not learning a language and playing an instrument. Aiden is 10, and he wants to be an engineer or a professional basketball player. And he says he can work for a Chinese company or a sports league. Something we haven't talked about yet is is the financial aspect. Is this type of education more expensive? Well, Katerina Brito with DCPS says it doesn't cost more to hire teachers, but there are other associated costs, including buying additional books in a foreign language. There are also some challenges. Many parents are interested in foreign languages when their children are young, but it takes five to seven years to become fluent in a language, so they really need to be in a program for the long haul. And Markita Alexander from Washington Yuying School says teachers from other cultures also need to learn the American system of education, which is very different from, say, in China, where 60 or 70 students might be all listening to a teacher in front of the classroom. It sounds like like this is a really a whole new way of thinking about foreign language. I mean, especially if you compare it with what many Americans, such as myself, you know, grew up with. Yes, it's a very big shift from when we talked about bilingual education as a remedial effort for children who weren't fluent in English. And plenty of people say it's long overdue because many other cultures and countries speak multiple languages. I grew up in India, Rebecca, and my dad speaks six languages. My mother speaks five. And in school, I was expected to learn two other languages in addition to English. So really, this change in D.C. and in the U.S. is really a reflection of how much more global our city and our nation have become. What are those those two other languages? Hindi and Kannada. I was, gonna, I was going to try to say thank you in those languages. I can't do that, so I will just say merci, gracias. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Kavitha Cardoza. Daniel Do you have a child studying in a dual language program? Are you on a waiting list for one of those programs? We would love to hear your perspective. You can send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In a minute, our traditions turn musical, from 15th century strings to makers of pianos to a local legend who brought bluegrass to many a radio. My best memories are, are listening to Ray tell the stories of, of folks that I always idolized through the years, like Don Reno and Charlie Moore. That's all coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's our annual Traditions show, and so far we've brought you a bevy of customs and rituals, some culinary, some religious, some biological. And in this next segment, we'll turn to traditions of the musical variety. Not too long ago, you may have seen the New York Times magazine put out a brief list of what it called failed inventions. The second so-called failure was the viol, sometimes called the viola da gamba. It's kind of like a small cello. But here's the thing. A lot of people still play the viol, including right here in D.C. 
The Vial Society of America has more than a thousand members, and we sent Hans Anderson to a meeting of the local chapter to find out why people still love the Vial. It's 7.30 on a Monday night, and Vial players are showing up at Jessica Eag's house in Chevy Chase, Maryland. First, there are five Vial players cramped in Eag's living room, and then more start to show up. It's pretty informal. They sit in a circle, pass out the parts, and start to play. The viol has its origins in the late 15th century, and it's still most often associated with music from the Renaissance and Baroque times. Tina Chauncey is at Eek's house tonight. Seemingly everyone in the D.C. viol community knows her, and I'll let her explain the instrument's appeal. You know, it's just, it's just a beautiful sound. It, it, it's, you know, it's like a particularly good wine. It just goes with everything. The viol has six strings and frets, sort of like a guitar. There are also less obvious differences between the viol and modern string instruments. So a violin is, is rather tightly constructed so that it projects that sound out. But the viol is more like a mirror because the, the back is flat and the sound comes in and is reflected up. So it's under less pressure, it's warmer. And that's what Chauncey likes about it. She also tells me there are jazz vials, electric vials. It's just like almost any niche. You look at it from the outside and you think, who would really care about marshmallow-flavored ear warmers? You know, And then you go kind of inside the community and you find that everybody in the community cares about it. The only one of us who was really famous, who got you know, anything substantial, was Jordi Saval. And the movie Tous les Matins du Monde ended up being really, really popular. And so many people I know say, oh, I know what the vial is because I saw it in this movie. That movie came out in 1991, and it's how Amy Dominguez first heard about the vial. My father had taken me to go see it at the old key theater where she thought, what is this? This is this instrument, it has so many strings and it has frets, it's crazy. But she liked it, and now she's been playing for about seven years. Dominguez is a cello player by background, but she's drawn to the history of the viol. Wealthy families would have a chest of vials, you know, different sizes. And if, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to play it. So that's what people would do. We don't really have to do that anymore. But the tradition lives on in Eek's house. The viola da gamba fell out of fashion because it wasn't well-suited for concert halls. It wasn't able to project in the same way violins or cellos do. And although this seems like a good reason to maybe forget about the viol, the intimacy of viol playing is what many like about it. Carol Marsh taught music at the University of North Carolina, and for a while, she was a cello player. I don't know, it just, it just spoke to me, and I, after I'd played viol for a couple of years, I stopped playing cello. <laughs> So much yellow and never look back, yeah. That was 42 years ago. Marsh says the viol was popular for about 100 years. 1570s, 1580s to Henry Purcell, and I think the last Fantasias were written in 1678, and that was sort of the end of the viol. <laughs> Which is 327 years, about, before Sophia Morris was born. When I told them that I play it, they usually ask what it is. Um... Most people have ne- never even heard of it. <laughs> I'm talking with Morris as she colors on a whiteboard. She's in the fourth grade and is part of Jessica Eag's intermediate bio class. Hey. 
Morris, along with their classmates, Eliza Boniface and Dante Loff, are learning viol. And while they like the tone of the instrument and its historical significance, they also like the ribbons. Each time you get a ribbon? Yeah, if we um, pass the test, then we get a little ribbon. When someone in Eeg's class plays a piece at a certain skill level, they get a green belt or a red belt, which is represented by a ribbon of that color. It's kind of like karate. At the end of class, Morris tries for a green belt. Which she gets... And is one step closer to mastering the vial. I'm Hans Anderson. We'll turn now to another musical instrument and a man in Maryland who's been making this instrument for years. In fact, as Heather Taylor tells us, he became the first African-American to launch his own piano manufacturing business. Warren Shad performed in his first jazz concert at age four. And when he was eight years old... I played at the Lincoln Memorial, at the Lincoln Memorial Steps. Shad, a professional jazz drummer and pianist, is a third-generation musician. The late Grammy-winning vocalist Shirley Horn was his aunt. But his father James, a jazz pianist in his own right, was probably one of the single greatest influences on how Shad came to define his work life. My father was the first African-American registered piano technician. He had a great work ethic. And so I was in the household experiencing and watching a master technician 24 hours a day. He would go to his government gig in the morning, come home, eat, go to the gig, play piano on a gig, end up ending at 2 a.m., come home, work in the basement on restoring a piano, piano parts everywhere, and then, again, getting up, going on the government gig. It's like a cycle. Shad's father was also the exclusive piano tuner for the Howard Theater. I got to see a lot of the greats rehearse and perform. And so everyone from Peggy Lee to Sarah Vaughan to Ella Fitzgerald. When Warren Shad was a teen, his father introduced him to a very different kind of entertainment venue. When I was 14, I played drums in a strip club. He also developed other useful skills. I would take the pianos all the way down to the nuts and bolts, basically, and rebuild them back up as a hobby. And then my father would sell them. By the time Shad reached adulthood, he'd performed with a variety of music greats, including Wynton Marcellus and Dizzy Gillespie. By the late 1990s, he was doing more piano tuning than drumming. And then a client said something that changed his career trajectory. I was working on a piano, and there was a gentleman named Mr. Tucker. All of a sudden, he started crying. And he says, Shad, see that piano? You tuning? He says, well, it should say Shad. His client admired Shad's piano expertise, and he thought that Shad deserved to create his own line. Warren Shad suddenly experienced a kind of aha moment. He realized that he had a special skill to offer that wasn't already in the marketplace. And so I flew back home and I pulled out these old dusty papers, ways that I had written about how to augment the sound of the piano. Shad recognized that pianists faced a common challenge, and he proposed a solution. When musicians are performing, pianists can never hear themselves play. So to try to remedy that, 
I added speakers on the front of the piano. What I wanted to do was make sure that the piano music was coming to the pianist. Chad ended up writing his own patents for his piano manufacturing business. And thanks to contacts in the music industry, he sold his first piano to a luxury hotel in New York City. Today, his pianos are sold around the world from Italy to Australia. And he did it all without a background in law. So anything that I came up with, uh, I certainly uh, knew that I needed to run to the, the patent office immediately once I came up with these particular ideas. And just as his father taught him about how to entertain different kinds of audiences, Shad has found very different audiences for his piano. This past May, on the show American Idol, a Shad piano was featured in the finals. When it comes to a strong work ethic, Warren Shad says he's continuing a family tradition. My father was my barometer, and so um, how could I be less? Just like his father, Warren Shad keeps finding new ways to keep a family music tradition alive. I'm Heather Taylor. Mr. Piano Man, please Tickle those ivory keys No one can noodle the way that you doodle Those ricky-ticky melodies Oh, Mr. Piano Man. We'll close today's show with a tribute to one of our own here at WAMU. A man who, for many decades, played an important role in promoting America's musical traditions. Jennifer Strong brings us this look at the life of Ray Davis. How many of you uh, listen to Ray Davis? That's bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley at a concert with Ray in 1993. I've been knowing Ray, I guess, for 40 years. We're the best of friends. There's nothing that we wouldn't do for each other. Nothing he wouldn't do for me and nothing I wouldn't do for him. That's the way we go through life, doing nothing for each other. (laughs) Ray Davis was on the air for 65 years, over 30 of them at WBMD in Baltimore, and nearly 30 more here at WAMU. Well, a great big howdy and welcome on a Sunday morning to the Ray Davis Show from 88.5 FM. Turn up your radio and stay tuned. It's Mother's Day, and Mom, this is for you right here. When you listen to Ray, you were really listening to Ray. There was nothing put on there. It was, you know, like having an old friend in the house talking to you and then introducing you to some music maybe you hadn't heard before. That's retired WAMU and NPR newscaster Bill Redland. There were a couple of times when I almost left the road. I was laughing so hard at Ray's stories. Stories like this one about his days working at XERF, a radio station just over the Mexican border. It could be heard all over the country, sometimes all over the world, by blasting a signal many times greater than what's allowed by the FCC. The town didn't have enough power to operate the radio station, so we had to have our own diesel power supply to keep us on the air. And every once in a while, a snake or something would climb in and blow up a tube. (laughs) That's Ray on the Dick Spotswood Show in 1995. But uh, when we were on, that station got all over the country. My mother was living uh, on the eastern shore at the time of Maryland, and she listened to us every night down there. And that's, that's There a were claims way. the station reached up to a million watts occasionally and that it got so bad that they were even jamming it in the, in the Soviet Union. But most of all, Ray talked about the musicians he played, bluegrass enthusiast Scott Brannon. I recorded over 100 songs for Ray on his Wango label. 
and my best memories are, are listening to Ray tell the stories of, of folks that I, I always idolized through the years, like Don Reno and Charlie Moore. Ray's stories were firsthand. He would introduce and hang out with music legends at concerts and festivals. The list includes people like Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, Johnny Cash, and the Stanley Brothers. He did the Arcadia Bluegrass Festival with Bill Hale for 30 years. In 1989, the winter show in December, Ray and Nona got married on stage. We got him set up with the uh, fire department chaplain. Ralph Stanley was his best man. Actually, he passed away on their 25th anniversary. Ray retired last year, much to the chagrin of his many fans, including Ron Shandor. He's among those who paid tribute to him at a memorial service this week. When he retired, WAMU wasn't WAMU anymore. I hated to see him go. Talk show host and colleague Diane Rehm. Whenever he saw me, he was so kind and so polite. And, you know, always with a smile on his face and always with the softest, warmest words. Ray Davis lost his battle with leukemia on December 3rd. I'm Jennifer Strong. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Hans Anderson, Emily Berman, and Lauren Ober, along with reporters Heather Taylor and Jennifer Strong. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find information about all the music we play at metroconnection.org. You can also listen to past episodes of the show there. You can subscribe to our podcast. And you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll circle back to some of the stories we've done this year and bring you the latest chapter. It's a show we're calling Follow-Ups. We'll find out what's next for a Capitol Hill hardware store once ravaged by fire. We'll do some more island hopping in the Chesapeake Bay, and we'll check back with children at the city's largest homeless shelter, D.C. General. The place I would most like to live is just somewhere where I like knowing people. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.